0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.
1: I'm here at Pike Place Market, a treasured meeting place in Seattle. It's been around over a 100 years. It's also among the top tourist attractions in the world. It brings in around 10 million visitors each year. It's housed it's right here, There's this historic olive green building. Uh, there are stalls lining the, the cobblestone path and plenty more inside, selling anything for spices, crafts, pastries, bagels, fresh fruit and veg. And of course, yes, this place, this seaside city has plenty of, you guessed it, fresh fish. Br- Branzino, monkfish, North Atlantic mackerel, squid, clams, pike, of course, and oh, oh, watch, oh, God. There goes a salmon. Uh, Watch out, you might cop one in the head. The fishmongers, they are famous for their fish-throwing skills. (laughs) They fly through the air from the ice baths to the checkout.
0: That's where you buy a fish, people, yeah! Oh, there goes another one.
1: This stunning Pacific Northwest city, just south of Vancouver, it's produced more than its fair share of global exports. Think Jimi Hendrix, Nirvana, Microsoft, Boeing, Starbucks... I'm here to find out what makes this city so special, so unique, and how has it changed over the years? I'm Jonathan Green. This is Return Ticket, the show that transports you to familiar places done differently. In this series, we'll live with no limits in Monaco, search for the truth from the hilltops of Rio de Janeiro and hear about Fiji's new reality. But now, Seattle. Can I take your order? Oh, um, yeah. I'll have uh, I'll have a grande americano, a uh, no room, thanks. Whatever that means. Uh, uh, one of the landmarks at Pike Place Market is the original Starbucks coffee shop. It's it's a quaint small shop front, uh, heritage green paint to match the rest of the market. Uh, Certainly, Starbucks has come a long way from, from these humble roots.
2: A Grande Americano for Jonathan?
1: Oh, oh, yeah, that's me. Thanks. And uh, also, can I get a packet of those, those ceramic tumblers? What's the beautiful design on their base?
0: That's a Coast Salish
3: design from this region. Those tumblers are part of a partnership with 8th Generation, actually. A native-owned company started by the artist Louis Gong...
1: There's stores just inside the market if you want to check it out. Oh, well, thanks. Yeah, I'd love to.
3: That's just down by the gum wall. I'd be happy to show you where it's at. I'm going right there. I'm actually the founder of the company that you just asked to go see. You're Louis? Yes. Yeah, I'm Louis. Oh, wow. What? A, that, that's a ridiculous coincidence, but I'm
1: so glad we met. <laughs> and here we are. We're down at 8th Generation.
3: So... This is sort of part store, part gallery, part headquarters. Our focus at 8th Generation is creating products from Native American art and making sure that the products, when they're sold, benefit the artists who are generating the beautiful artwork. You know, it sounds straightforward, but it's really revolutionary because the standard before 8th Generation came around was for large companies just to copy Native art, put it on products, and sell it along with a story about how that art was connected to Native communities. But Native people would never benefit from any of that. So we've flipped the script on an outdated way of doing business.
1: And you've summed it up really neatly. There's, there's a thing just here, on, just inside the entrance, inspired Natives. That's, that's your your sort of tagline, inspired Natives, not Native inspired. That really sums it up.
3: Yeah, there's a term for fake Native art on products, and it's Native inspired and a lot of companies who use fake native art will use that term to confuse consumers into thinking that the product and the artwork on it have something to do with native people but it doesn't really and that name of the business eighth generation what does that mean eighth generation is really a play on two things one it is the idea of Seven Generations. Have you ever heard of Seven Generations? Tell me about that. Well, it's basically a simple decision-making framework that is used by a lot of Native communities and to sum it up, what it says is that in making your decisions, you should consider the consequences of your decisions seven generations into the future. So by naming the business eighth generation, I'm paying respect to the people who came before me, those previous seven generations, and acknowledging that the opportunity that I have is because I'm standing on their shoulders. It's wonderful to be able to tell the stories of the rich history of the first peoples of this place. You know, like almost every place in North America, indigenous people have been here for thousands and thousands of years. And uh, Seattle is no exception, has a very rich history of native people. And those people are absolutely still here. Uh, We have very strong tribes in the area. And aesthetically, the city is going under a transformation where city officials, the people who are making decisions about what kind of art gets shown in public spaces are finally pushing forward the cultural art of Seattle, which is called Coast Salish art. It's a really magical moment in the history of Seattle. And that Coast Salish art is replacing artwork that most people associate with Seattle. That's the art of Southeast Alaska with totem poles it's very beautiful monumental art but it's not the historical art of seattle not from this place yeah, yeah so i think this is an amazing moment for someone like you to be visiting seattle because you can witness firsthand the transition in the native aesthetic that the city pushes forward
1: and slowly unpicking that that colonialist overlay so eighth generation, is this great opportunity to, to, to produce this art and to empower the makers of that art, but also to, to spread its stories and to, to, to educate the, the local community and, and the visitors to Seattle, wherever it lands, and, and those beautiful blankets woven here.
3: Yes. Eighth generation has come a long way since I started it by just drawing on shoes with a Sharpie. And in 2019, we started manufacturing wool blankets right in our Seattle warehouse. I look at every one of these products, especially the beautiful blankets. They're all little Trojan horses. And when people from all around the world visit the store, they take them home. When they're in the living room, all their friends are gonna ask, when they're back in Australia or in Asia, where did you get that? What's the story behind that? And then they'll be repeating what they learned at Eighth Generation, which is really important to my community. And I think it's really important to Indigenous people from all over the world that those discussions get sparked up.
1: Your story, your story is remarkable, Louis. And it's, as you say, you you started with a sharpie and a pair of vans. But <laughs> before that, the thing of buying those vans—that wasn't something that was always accessible
3: for you. <laughs> yeah, I grew up in a house with no running water. You know, I come from very a very humble background in many ways, but it was it was rich in ways that were important to me later on in life. So, you know, because I grew up poor, I think I inherited this grit and determination and this confidence in problem solving that helped me later on as an entrepreneur. And when I started my business, I was able to, you know, solve one problem after another over the course of about fifteen years. But I think the thing that'll be my legacy if you know if I could talk about that is that I brought other people with me. So the company that I started has created opportunities for, you know, probably going on, you know, seventy or eighty native artists. And every time we sell something with their art on it, those artists are getting paid. And because of The work that everybody is putting in, the change that has happened and is represented by 8th generation is permanent. It will never go back to the way it was before and that is cool. We're seeing actual change in power and tens of millions of dollars a year that would typically go straight out of native communities to big companies that were putting fake native art on products are now actually going back to the native people that are um, starting these businesses and creating the art in the first place. So you've sort of stepped back from the, the, the leadership role here at that Generation. Yeah, I like to say that I, I retired from business leadership last year. And what that means is I'm no longer involved in the uh, managing of the company. Um, I sold the company in 2019 to the Snoqualmie Tribe When it was time for me to retire from the CEO role at 8th Generation, the first person that myself and the leaders of the Snoqualmie tribe thought about was Colleen Echohawk, and we were so lucky to get her.
1: I'm going to have to chat with Colleen. You look very busy there, uh, packing these beautifully decorated towels and blankets.
0: One of the things that's such a powerful ceremony that happens here in the Salish Tribes is the canoe journey, where hundreds of traditional canoes go out on the water and they make this journey. And this year, they journey to one of the neighboring tribes called Muckleshoot. And so we have been making products for that canoe journey. We make, huh. we, make, we worked with the Muckleshoot Tribal Artists, and we're making this beautiful wool blanket. We're making a cotton throw. We're making towels. So
1: stay dry in your canoe.
0: <laughs> yeah, they're, gonna, like, gorgeous, they're beautiful beach towels, but with like this gorgeous Coast Salish art on it. And they also talk about, you know, the 2023 journey because it's the first one since the pandemic happened. So it's a really special, very hard, but beautiful journey. Speaking
1: of canoes mm. and water, <laughs> and, and I mean, this is Seattle is so much about... That, that extraordinary expanse of, of rugged water and mountains, yeah. the, the beauty of all of that. Mm-hmm. How do I get to the waterfront, <laughs> Colleen, from here?
0: <laughs> you you asked a great question. You know, there is a, a expansion, um, you know, we're really well known for Pike Place Market. There will be a stairway that goes down to the waterfront from Pike Place Market. We have a brand new waterfront that will be opening up next year, showcasing a lot of really beautiful Native art and design as well.
1: Yeah, so, okay, what, what sort of Native public art can we expect to see?
0: One I am just so excited about and it actually was commissioned well over 10 years ago is a three-piece sculpture set by Puyallup artist Sean Peterson. I've seen the renderings of it. It is this beautiful piece that is, it's striking. It's kind of a, a modern interpretation of some of the welcome figures that were a part of this area. So that is really exciting. There's also a new art piece by the Seattle Aquarium by the Lummi artist Dan Friday. It's a glass art piece Piece. And then there's some other pieces up further up by the um, Pike Place Market that is done by a trio of Native women. So wow. there's going to be some incredible representation right down there on the waterfront. I'm so excited to see what it's going to look like, and I'm excited to go down there and enjoy it. And we have a we have a beautiful waterfront in Seattle. It's very vibrant already, but with this new expansion that's being put in, it's just going to take it up a level.
1: I'm really excited to check it out. I'm, I'm heading down. Uh, before I do, though. I've, I've got to say, I'm feeling a bit peckish. Uh, <laughs> where would you suggest I go for lunch?
3: Oh my gosh, if you are in Seattle searching for food, you have to go try the brand new All All Cafe. All All? Yeah, it's actually a native word. And if you were to try to find that with a Google search phonetically, you will never find it because it starts with a question mark. So look for. Chief Seattle Club Cafe and you will find All All Cafe. The name is actually a Lushootseed word. That's the indigenous language of the city of Seattle. It's very progressive, both in the way that it's named, the design of the space. And when you go there, you will actually get served authentic indigenous food from different regions around the country. I was there just a little bit ago and I had bison tacos from the plains and I had some wild rice from the Great Lakes region, and some huckleberry pie from this area. So embedded in all the food that they have, there are a lot of teachings about the Indigenous people of uh, of the Americas.
1: Louis, Colleen, thank you so much. It, it has been so wonderful. My pleasure.
0: Thank you so much for having us. i
1: finally, I've finally made it to the waterfront. Ah, it's a gorgeous uh, blue expanse of the Puget Sound and snow-capped mountains in the distance and, and yeah, some, some very hungry seagulls. There's <laughs> a bit of construction going on, uh, but there's some amazing public art already here. I'm meeting a veteran uh, of the Seattle arts and culture scene, Nancy Guppy, at the Sculpture Park. She's the longtime host of the local TV show The Art Zone nancy this place this place is amazing it is huge
2: yeah it's like nine acres it's nine acres kind of in the heart of the city looking straight out as you can see at puget sound and the olympic mountains and the ferries going to the islands across the way it's quite it's, it's quite a spectacular place and with like 20 i don't know 20 sculptures or maybe more in the park it's just yeah it's really something else there's one that i don't you can see that one it's called split it's a tree that stainless steel tree. Um, it's just a 50-foot high thing. It's gorgeous. Gorgeous.
1: And this, is, and this is what I love about this city, too. I mean, yes, art and creativity all around you, but... The, the, the presence of the natural world here too. Mountains, snow, water, it's so present.
2: Yeah, and I think that that's kind of why it's called the Emerald City. I don't know when that was, um, the moniker was given to Seattle, but it really is. And you are surrounded on all sides really by water. There's bridges between lots of little um, neighborhoods. So it's a natural paradise. And that's really, I think, why a lot of people get drawn to come to Seattle. If they can overlook the rain and the grey, they're going (laughs) to dig on the beautiful nature all around them. (laughs)
1: About the rain and the (laughs) grey.
2: Oh, yeah. Mm, Yeah.
1: So you've been, I mean, you've been such a key figure in the Seattle creative scene, you know, for for a bit. Do you have a sense about what it is about this city that, that produces so many people in so many fields who really stand out?
2: Well, you know, I think that there, in some ways, because we're the upper left hand corner of the United States, and even though obviously we're a fairly sophisticated city and we're known around the world, I think we're still seen as a little bit tucked away and a little bit uh, like, oh, yeah, that place up there. <laughs> and so I think that gives a certain amount of license or freedom where you're not scrutinized, like if you're in Los Angeles or New York or perhaps Chicago. So, I just feel like there's a freedom to to create and to try things here. So many things come from Seattle,
1: I mean, whether you talk about Boeing or Microsoft or or Jimi Hendrix or Nevada. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. And all the tech thing blew up here. We've had numerous waves of different kinds of music scenes come, come, come through Seattle, come up through Seattle. So, yeah, there's, there's a lot going on here and, and always has been. And the heat got turned up probably in the late 80s, early 90s. That's when the first round of Californians moved up here. Tech was starting to really take off. And then Seattle started to really change and shift. And it and, and really just had to get bigger, take in more people. So it, it, it changed from a small town to less of a small town.
1: <laughs> who, who are the key? I mean, especially in music, because I mean the names are extraordinary. I mentioned Hendrix, Nirvana, but Quincy Jones, yeah. Ray Charles, <laughs>
2: right? Exactly. So, so we've got some really great jazz roots. Obviously, like as you said, Mr. Hendrix, who's you know renowned as probably the best guitar player, yeah, you know, mama. arguably <laughs> in the world, or uh, yeah. And then, of course, then there was the punk scene was pretty strong here and a lot of the punk thing then kind of moved into the grunge thing and that blew yep. up, as you said, Nirvana, Alice in Change, Soundgarden, Mad Season, you know, Screaming Trees. It was a huge, huge scene and that just kept rolling for quite some time. All those time.
1: flanny shirts. <laughs>
2: yes, flannel shirts and big Dark Martin boots. <laughs>
1: I mean, that's
0: the thing about
1: a city which is a little bit enclosed, a little bit entire of itself. So, it, it I mean, is it, is it, as a musician, especially in that period, was it easy to sort of make your way? Was it easy to sort of gather resources, find the places to, to rehearse, find the places yes. to record?
2: Yeah, when you're, if we're talking kind of that 90s grunge thing, or 80s, 90s, late 80s, um, yes, there was. You could, it was less, it was easier to live in the city, first of all. And so you could live close to other artists, other, your bandmates, other musicians, whatever. So you're a lot of cross-pollination, just almost honestly on this crossing in the street you're seeing each other all the time yeah Yeah, yeah. so you could you know affordable there then there was a fair amount of rehearsal space whether it was in the basement of some coffee house or some really weird scary little closet somewhere in some big warehouse down in pioneer square but these areas these places were available and so these musicians i mean they're young kids and they don't have any money they don't know what they're doing but they, have the, they can get together and they can practice their head off. And then there, are, there were still are some, but there were a lot of venues mm-hmm. where artists who are just finding their feet could get in front of an audience, which is the most crucial thing possible. You have to get out there, show you know, play your music in this case, and actually figure out how do, how do I be on stage? How are we on stage? How do I hold myself? How do I handle a crowd? You can't do that in your mind. You have to do it in real time. And so that was available to all these artists. And they just, it was like a popcorn popper. They just kind of popped out, you know, and and they hit on on different levels. But many of them hit and hit big.
1: You did a a sketch comedy show in in the 90s. I did. A, A bit of improv.
2: Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was really fun. Almost Live, it was Seattle's version of Saturday Night Live, which aired right before SNL every Saturday night. And you
1: had a lot of talent on hand.
2: Yeah, we did. We had some talent on hand. You know, I did a piece, a recurring bit, where I was a talk show host called My Name Was Me, and it was a narcissistic talk show host. (laughs) And I had numerous different (laughs) That never happens. (laughs) Oh, of course, it never happens. I know. Talk show hosts are so giving and so generous one episode i guess was um i had dave grohl on who drummer for nirvana so he was my guest and i basically broke a guitar because i was arguing with him about the right way to play a song that he had written and he was so good and so funny he was just a natural
1: isn't it great when you discover another (laughs) side to somebody you know in a certain way yes yes you could do that too
2: it's really thrilling, it really is. that thing you mentioned
1: about, you know, especially in that that 90s period where there, there were the places to live, there were the places to play, there were the places to rehearse, and it was accessible to to, to young people who had no money
2: right yes, is yes.
1: Seattle still that place?
2: No. No, it's it's really not. Um, I'll give you a, a, a nice comparison. I'm a I'm I'm sixty two, so I've I've been around a long time. But when I was in my in the eighties and my twenties and I wanted to find an apartment, I found an, a studio apartment for two hundred and twenty five dollars a month, which is very cheap. Mm. But it was, you know, some it was like oh okay, I could, I can afford that. Now you would probably never find anything for um, oh my gosh, under twelve, fifteen hundred dollars. A studio. Studio. And so that really tells you that it's just not a place that you can move freely without money. And that usually will mean the little starving artist, for lack of a better way to put it, is just going to have a harder time. And we need artists in the community to do what they do because that's why people want to be in great cities. That's why they want to be here. It's not just tech or um, the pottery barns. God bless them. It's the specifics of what that city um, has going on artistically and what it has to offer in in, in entertainment.
0: I, I
1: want you to take me on, on a yeah. little tour here. And the, the, there's a sure. place that you think is a bit special. Tell me about that.
2: Yeah. So there's a lot of great neighborhoods in the area and in Georgetown, which is south of uh, downtown Seattle. It's in the Soto area, south of downtown. And in in Georgetown, a lot of cool old historic buildings, great restaurants, and and there is this area. It's uh, so a one block stretch called Equinox Studios, and this guy, Sam Ferzano, is the brainiac behind it, the visionary, and it's three or four warehouses, and then they've converted them into artist studios for artists of all stripes. And you're talking blacksmiths, sculptors, musicians, painters, dancers, filmmakers, you name it. It's down there. And so they can all be there, they can have their own space, they can do their thing, they can cross-pollinate, they can, you know, come up with projects together. It's like a art it's just a creative compound with a really really great vibe to it.
1: I've had a wonderful time seeing seeing the phenomenal art that Seattle has to offer. But before I go though, I thought I'd get a bird's eye view of the whole city from its tallest tourist attraction, the Space Needle. I'm at the top, 500 feet above the city, and I can can see downtown. I'm sure that's grown substantially since the Needle was built 60 years ago. When Seattle built this, this landmark in 1962 for the World Fair, it wanted to project a particular image to the world. There was the country space race with the Soviet Union. That played a major role in this site. But there was another side to it, the way that Seattle presented itself, an aesthetic, a sense of place. And I've come to learn that part of that Seattle image, that involved a lot of appropriated Native art and culture. And I can't help but think that when Seattle is the world's focus again in 2026, this time for the FIFA World Cup, with all the new native-led public art at the waterfront and and through the city, that maybe a, a different Seattle, perhaps a, a more truthful Seattle, will be on display. You've been listening to Return Ticket. You heard from Louie Gong, Colleen Echohawk, and Nancy Guppy. Producers are Rachel Bongiorno and Alan Whedon. Technical production, musical theme by Brendan O'Neill. Executive producer is Rhiannon Brown. I'm Jonathan Green. And that's the final episode in season three. Yes, there's a season one and a season two. So if you've liked what you've heard, check those out. All the three seasons compiled for you with the ABC Listen
0: app.